Previously on the Ivory Tower Boiler Rooms, part one exclusive interview with Dr. Tim Dean. I don't know if you know Zachary Zane's work, but he wrote this book called Boy Slut, which is just so fascinating about being a bi male. And all of like the sex parties he goes on as an in investigative journalist. And he was on the podcast. It was just, um, I love the work he's doing, but it's a popular press, Tim. Like, I think that even at the library, I'm seeing more of these risky, and when I'm using risky, I mean, um, taking chances of like that publishers are taking chances in a, whether it be, I think his is Abrams. Um, but I've seen so many different Harper has um, taken a lot of sexual culture discussions on. Do you think Verso books um, too with bad gays? Um, is this just a disconnect between academia and pop culture right now? Because I do feel pop culture is taking the nude male body is having almost a rebirth of sorts. I love that idea. I love the idea of the, of the nude male body kind of being reborn and being um, uh, newly, newly displayed to us, you know, um, uh, it's, it's all good. Um, and I was not aware that Playgirl was having a resurgence. So I, that's, that's interesting to, to, to learn about. Um, I mean, I have several thoughts in response to what you said. One is, you know, um, Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the ivory tower boiler room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So he's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of the sound of music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime and Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime and Academia to talk about 
female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Libraries have always had more pornography than, than we realize, and in fact, than libraries themselves often realize. And um, when I was, you know, when, when my students and I were working on the Porn Archives project, and we had a conference, and we did a, a seminar, a graduate seminar, and we did a lot of work, and we were thinking about way that porno, you know, pornography in a way is, is a library classification, right, to, to an extent, right, and I was having dinner downtown, in, I was having lunch downtown in Buffalo and doing some kind of public humanities work, and I was, I ended up meeting with a, a woman who, who worked at the, not the university library, but the, but, but the central library in Buffalo, and she asked me what I was working on and I couldn't help it. I just started talking about pornography and she clearly was not thrilled about that. And I said, you know, I said, you know, libraries, libraries have a, a sort of parallel classification system for their pornography. And I said, I bet, I bet your library has porn. And she, her, her response was clearly like, you know, with the Buffalo Public Library, we don't, we don't have pornography. And then she wrote to me a couple of days later, she's like, you were right. She's like, this library has collected magazines like Playboy since they began. She said, it's all here. She said, I had no idea. And she'd worked at the library for years, right? Um, so this is a way of saying that, yeah, even at the library, it's always been at the library, right? It's always been at the library. Uh, and there's an interesting history that David Squires writes about, about the intersection of, um, information technology, libraries, and, and pornography. There's a long history there. Um, what else, what else? I need to look up the voice slut. It sounds like, I, sounds like the kind of thing that I would uh, enjoy. Um, I'm, I'm keen to read it. Um, I do think that academia and the field of, you know, the fields of gender, queer sexuality studies are all plagued by a kind of, you know, um, defensiveness about, about a need to be, a need to maintain their institutional or improve their institutional status by being somehow respectable, right? Mm. And there is always this drive, the drive for um, institutional credibility goes along with um, a kind of de a desexualization and and what you earlier referred to as a kind of sanitization of the work, um, and I think that's that is a kind of perennial problem which which um, popular culture does not have the same problem right does not have the same issue right they're not necessarily trying to be respectable they're they have a different issue they're trying to make money right <laughs> that's true <laughs> um, so. 
I, I, I do think that that, and you know, I, um, it's been interesting to me just on, you know, on sites like YouTube to see how many, how many men are, who are not necessarily gay or, or gay identified or even queer identified are, you know, never happier than when they are displaying their muscles and their oh, yeah. essentially naked body to as many people as possible. And they are very, very, they are perfectly happy that men look at their bodies as, as well as women. And that I think is, that is a relatively new thing. Noticing. Yeah, and it's fueled. Oh, sorry, to, I was going to say no, it's fueled ahead. by social media. I mean, right, there's right. there's so much that needs to be done on this younger male generation, even those who are in 30s, 40s who are on social media, but on TikTok especially, that straight identified men are touching each other. And they're like, the gym culture has now become literally the site of the gymnos. I've been joking that I should write a book called Gymnos Means Nude. And I've always wanted to do a type of, I will eventually, but um, like do a um, queer exploration of the gym and the body, because you're right. There's so much that cruising is so present, but it's also what's at the core of the gymnasium since it was founded right. is how the body is shown. But you're right. Straight men are now drawing attention to their bulges and like their body. And that's why I'm saying, I think there is something happening, but even, you know, you don't, not that I want to put you on the spot to give me feedback for my, um, you know, dissertation turning into a book eventually, which it will. But I have this whole idea of like, you know, when you come into play with your work on Whitman, like, also, I really turn to Mark Doty and his work, but about, I have this, um, coining this idea of queer male procreative poetics, which is that the eroticism of Whitman's work, it creates this lineage of queer men reading and then responding. And like, I interpret it as this new way of procreating. Um, but it was interesting to me that the feedback that I got um, asked because I'm so insistent on how Whitman turns to the ancient Greek is subverting the idea of the symposium and um, queer male Greek mythology. And the question that I knew was going to come up, but it was, you know, it's always fruitful to think through debates to your work, like you brought up, is, well, can women be part of this queer male procreative poetics? And what I am going to think through is that women are creating home, male homoerotic spaces as thinkers. But yeah, the absence of women is something that was brought to my attention and I knew that it would be there. And I do open up about it in my work. But it's something that I'm sure you've had to really think through is what you're kind of getting at with respectability politics in academia. I also wonder um, in terms of identity politics, like we can't, when you're talking about the queer male body, I feel like when it becomes about queer men, um, 
there's always going to be the question of, okay, but what about women? And I'm not saying that that's not, that you shouldn't ask that question, but I do wonder, like, has that been brought to your attention in your work? Yes, yes, it has, it has, <laughs> it has. For all the same reasons, they would be brought to, you know, raises a question to you. And I, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, you know, it was it was a question when I when I before I published the book on on before I published on unlimited intimacy, I I gave a lot of lectures on on the subject, and people would periodically ask, "Can women be part of the subculture?" Right, and even online on on bareback forums occasionally somebody who was claiming to be a woman would ask you know can i be part of this and it's you know it's an interesting question right it's a question about why why do why do women feel and why do feminists feel it's a feminist question to say this is about an all this is about desire between men what about me? Can I be part of it? Right. Um, and there's something one expects it, one understands it, one understands that it's partly, it's, it's, it's driven, it's driven by feminism, it's driven by ideas about inclusivity, which are incredibly important. At the same time as if you reverse the scenario and you're talking about a lesbian or a women only space, if a man asks, can I be part of this? And of course, you know, when lesbian porn, straight men like nothing more than to get involved, right? Um, but we have appropriate skepticism about that desire for in a in a single sex space for another another gender to get involved. And I think there is, um, I think it's worth pushing back against that automatic question what about women because you're talking about desire between and among men and there is always something potentially heteronormalizing about saying so where are the women right where are the women in this tradition where are the women in this uh, poetic i've forgotten your phrase the the the, the procreative uh, queer, queer male procreativeness right yeah. right um I think there's something worth holding on to about the the, the male male specificity of that, um, and I don't think that that means that it's excluding women uh, any more than I think you know lesbian desire is about excluding men, or mm -hmm. you know women only feminist spaces are about excluding men. I think that's that's defining those things in terms of what they don't include. And I don't think that that's what motivates them. I think they're about something else, which is much more interesting. Um, but we have become obsessed with uh, what is being excluded here, as if every gender needs to be included at every moment in every practice. And I think that there's, there's something problematic about that. Um, so, um, so that's that's um that's that's one thing i would say yeah Maybe. well oh no go ahead well no i was just going to say i'm so glad you're saying this tim because it gives it it helps like i knew okay this is what i'm arguing but when i've attended 
straight colleagues, like seeing their work, I've in the back of my head, I've always thought, oh, what about queer representation? But that question usually doesn't get asked. I'm like, well, why aren't you asking them about queer people? Like it it, it does grate my nerves. It, it's something that, um, like you've said, if we're framing that as a feminist question, isn't the subversiveness that is, isn't the subversiveness that men are engaging in sex together, like that is against the norm. And right. it's kind right. of like right now, I'm hearing that male only spaces, um, like the Belvedere is, which there aren't a lot of queer male only spaces. Um, there is a lot of integration with the LGBT community, especially now on Fire Island, but this male only space has empowered, allows you to network with those you would not get to feel a comfort level with. And now they're being questioned, like I've seen news, not the Belvedere, but I've seen another space of, well, wait, and queer women now enter the male only space. And I'm like, wait, would that be asked of, like you said, a, you know, queer female space? Like, would you allow men now to enter? And yeah, it, it's, it's a difficult question, but like you've said, I think it's and important it's... that we keep we keep the queer maleness. <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower boiler room. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture 
with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating, like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod Breaking the Gay Code in Art episode, where Ignacio explains that key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Tama Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Review's archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. That is, it's important that we think about these kinds of spaces in terms, not only in terms of, not only under the rubric of inclusivity, right? That is, um, there is something about, about desire and especially same-sex desire where if you start thinking in terms of gender inclusivity you're kind of you're kind of overriding the point right um that is that is a liberal progressive left-wing value of inclusivity is being used to actually uh, stamp out something that is uh, underground, minoritized, um, subterranean, uh, difficult to achieve. And, you know, when I, I presented on campus here a few years ago, the piece I had written about, um, about public sex in Key West, uh, performing the penis in Key West, right? And I showed an image of, in describing the, the architectural layout of this particular space um, i showed the door at, at, at the back of a bar which says something like um i don't know if it says clothing optional but it says men only beyond this point right and it is a clothing optional area of this resort space 
And one of my feminist colleagues said, and again, it was, you know, it was a kind of frank comment, and she's a friend of mine, and I appreciated her frankness. She said, you know, when you showed that image of the door saying men only beyond this point, she had a very strong reaction to it. You know, like, why can't I go in? Why is this excluding me? And, but I think she was also able to reflect, you know, this is, this is not, this is not a corporate boardroom, right? This is not, this is not a place of power where men make decisions the women are being excluded from. This is a space of desire where many men are wandering around naked. And in order to, in this, you know, not in this quite small space, there, there is the desire to, um, preserve the male only dimension of it because it's about because it's about erotic desire and it's not about um it's not about what that reaction what her reaction is about it's not about excluding women from positions of power or or devaluing women it's about it's about the um what becomes possible erotically sexually when it's all male only bodies together diverse though those bodies usually are right that is in terms of size shape color ethnicity background etc right that there's still it's it's mm -hmm. not actually a homogenous space at all um and so anyway i write about that but but your your question reminds me of that moment and a kind of misunderstanding about what those male-only spaces are about and and one has to you know one has to push back against the feminist desire to penetrate those spaces those spaces are not for you they're not about you something else is going on um the desire to penetrate those spaces is what should be questioned. That would be a stronger way. That would be a stronger way to put it. Yeah. Well, and I promise just 10 more minutes. Is that sure, okay? Sure. Ten? Okay. Uh, this is just so fascinating because um, Manuel Betancourt, um, whose episode is going to come out after yours, he wrote this new book called The Male Gazed. I'm not sure if you know of it, but Again, it's more for the academic intersection with popular press, right? Like that's, it, it's kind of yeah. how I hope my work lands in a library, but is also used in academic research that he gives us language for the queer male gaze, which for the longest time, I absolutely love Laura Mulvey's ma The Male Gaze um, essay. And I think Linda Williams wouldn't have done her porn work without Laura Mulvey and the male gaze, because it's so important to straight pornography. Cool. But I will say, I don't think we have a lot of manuals offering, these offering language, but I do, I've always said we need queer male gaze language. Like that's where I think psychoanalysis, like Leo Bersani starts to come into my forefront because a queer male gaze is not the same as the straight male gaze. And like queer male misogyny doesn't operate in the same way that straight male misogyny does. And that's I think true. maybe that's at the heart of this clothing optional debate or these spaces. Like, 
yes, there are queer men who can be misogynist. I'm not saying they're not. Um, and there are straight men who are amazing LGBT allies. Um, so I just think, though, like what you're saying is it, we don't have to fit everything under an umbrella. Like, you know, what you do with Unlimited Intimacy is you're exploring how men are engaging in barebacking. And I mean, even before I hit down to record with you, I got my Discovy prescription today mm. and I've been on prep for now, I don't know, since the pandemic, before the pandemic, I think. And like, I do wonder, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but if you return to unlimited intimacy now, like with prep, with now, you know, the viral risk being lowered, do you still... It does seem like we're now entering into a different way of queer men engaging in sex. Like, how do you process right. that? I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. I think the subculture that I was trying to describe in that book had already shifted by the time the book came out, right? And I think the prep, prep, and the various uh, iterations of prep over the last decade have really have really changed things, right? That is. Um, the viral risk is just different, right? Mm -hmm. And and you know, I, I've written about I've written about prep, um, both you know, I've written this essay called "Mediated Intimacies." I think that's what it's called. Um, Ten years ago, about prep, and I've just written something about prep literature too, which I think is a new chapter in the history of AIDS literature. Um, so I do think things have changed. Um, what I think, what may have stayed constant is, um, and this is something that I, people didn't always grasp about um, unlimited intimacy is, you know, viral risk is one kind of risk that goes on in bareback sex, but it's not the only kind of risk. Right. And what I think what I was ultimately interested in is the kinds of uh, emotional and psychical risks, the various kinds of sex entail sex with strangers, sex in groups, impersonal sex, communal sex, right, the kind of sex where you may not know the people you are having sex with. Um, and you know, if you're looking at this question epidemiologically, which much of the discourse on barebacking was doing, you're only thinking about one particular dimension of risk, which is about viral transmission, right? Um, I wanted to think about that, but also say there are other kinds of risks that come with 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 abandoning protection, right? Abandoning abandoning protection and abandoning oneself to to others. Um, and it's those kinds of psychical risks and how one thinks about those psychoanalytically, philosophically, what the ethics are of, a, of abandoning oneself to the other. Uh, that's sort of what I was sort of very interested in in the final chapter of the book. And I don't think those risks have gone away because you can get your prescription for Discovery, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That is. The, what it means to be um, intimate with another person always involves risk. And 
it's it's an illusion it's a myth it's a very dangerous and damaging myth that one can absolutely protect oneself from those risks and what interested me ethically about bareback subculture in the end of the 90s start of 2000s was that you know there was a group of men some of whom were extremely articulate about the kind of risk they wanted in order to have the kind of intimacy they wanted right that um, the closeness even with maybe especially with people you don't know um, involves a kind of abandonment and therefore of oneself and therefore involves you know a risk which which really intensifies the interaction right uh, and that's the point of it the point is not to protect oneself from it the point is to abandon oneself to it and i think that 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 desire that impulse for that kind of um that kind of risk and that kind of intimacy and that kind of closeness has not gone away and will not go away but our culture is not very good at talking about it or even recognizing it yeah well here is the memoir ending that i think will definitely um the audience has been waiting for but i mean i'll open up right now to you tim which is even at um on fire island what i've witnessed is like when i've had sexual experiences there's something that happens after the sexual moment where you become like you've had sexual intimacy, but now there's philosophical intimacy. I'm like, wait, how are we now into this intellectual conversation after sex? Like it is like, that's a moment of like, you've become more open because your bodies have come in contact. And yeah, it is an ethical question of, did you need to have that sexual intimacy? Did that person need that to then become more vulnerable intellectually? But, um, Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. -E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, and order today. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. 
The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. You know, I also, with Grinder, there's so many aspects. Like now, maybe because of prep, I'm not sure, but I've seen that there's more straight male curiosity. There's the man who doesn't show his face and he has a wedding ring, which he becomes an ethical dilemma. But yes, like this is why the work you do and that whether they be queer theorists or sex theorists, you know, any of the work that's being published is fascinating. But I would like, if you could, in our final moments, to respond to Ramsey Fawaz, who's been on the show. Yeah, he, yeah. He brings up, to. Yes, he brings up a topic I am sure you, that you've heard um, asked of unlimited intimacy, and it has to do more with your auto theory or memoirist style mm. of queer uh, men and just the men in your circle. So, you know, I'm going to play it for the audience, but I'm also now going to play it for Tim so he can hear um, what Ramsey asks. I love Tim, Tim Dean's work. I think he's brilliant. I think Unlimited Intimacy was like a major game change for me in terms of the way I think. Um, I think part of my frustration with Dean's criticism of the field is that it, he's he doesn't acknowledge enough, at least from what I've read, that for a lot of young queer study scholars living in this environment around like questions of sexual consent, questions of boundaries. You know, if you're a graduate student to go study actual sex cultures and to participate in them potentially could be very dangerous to you, right? Like you could get in trouble. You could have students that turn on you. You know, in the academic job market, people are getting a lot of jobs at smaller universities in conservative parts of the country. I think it would be very difficult to be a young queer theorist who's like, I'm gonna talk about my own sex practices, right? Like Tim Dean, as a very established scholar in Unlimited Intimacy, is able to talk about himself having bareback sex, right? Like that's unbelievable. Like it works really well in the context of that book. That is a very risky thing, right? And I'm not talking about sexual risk, I'm talking about professionally risky yeah. and it pays off for him. Because, well, don't worry, I'm going to ask him about this. So. Right, like it pays <laughs> off for him because the book is so brilliantly done and, and he is he's able to bring kind of autoethnography, right? Like writing about his own experiences into it. I don't think most people know how to do that. I don't think most people or have like that's something you achieve 
But yeah, he goes on to say, um, like as a tenured scholar, you're able to talk about um, bareback sex and also your sexual exploits that if you weren't tenured or even like say it was for a dissertation, um, that it would be too risky. Like that wouldn't get past the dis dissertation defense or be published. Yeah. So how would you respond to right. that well, claim? Um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't fully hear, you know, I, I couldn't hear the full thing of what, what Ramsey was saying. My, my, my impression is that he is himself now a tenured scholar, right? Yes. So he may be young, but he too has tenure. Um, I, I began working on Unlimited Intimacy. You know, it's, it's a book I researched and wrote essentially during my 30s, right? And when I was in my 30s, I think I, <laughs> I, think I was young. Um, I had just got tenure, um, but I was, not, I was not established in the way that I may look like I'm established now, right? You know, I finished that book, I finished the manuscript in 2005, and it took four years to get published, right? So, um, and I wrote it between, I don't know, like 1999 and 2005, something like that. Um, you know, which is what? Um, how many years ago is that? Um, I was still in my 30s, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I was not actually as... <laughs> old and and quote unquote established as as i am today um it, it, it can look like that from the perspective of somebody who um is a different generation i totally get that um you know i mean one thing for me to say was that i was um i was very inspired by samuel delaney's book times square red times mm. square blue came out in 1999, what he was able to do in that book and his insistence that it's, in, it's crucial not to simply interpret what we say, but to say what we do. And it seemed very, very important to me to, to do that, to do that, not to sort of, um, not to advertise my sexual exploits such as they were, but to, but to be sort of, um, open and honest about you know my relationship to this subculture and writing about it because i'm also part of it that is i am sort of almost unwittingly part of it and i want to understand what's going on you know i do think that i could not i would not have written that book probably before tenure right it's very much a post tenure book um, you know, I also think in the way that in the way that Delaney's work, um, Bassani's work have been so important for me, you know, the scholars who go, uh, the scholars and writers who go before us actually prepare the grounds for the kind of work that, that we want to do. So I do think that, you know, Ramsey, uh, who now has tenure, no matter how, no matter how young he is, um, can now do this because others have done it before him, you know. Um, I think for you, as somebody who does not yet have a tenure stream job, as far as I know, suddenly does not have tenure, just got your PhD, you know, you, you have to be aware of, you have to be savvy about what is going to get you the kind of 
job and the kind of career that you want, right? Um, what you describe about what you would like to write about, I think it sounds great, you know? And I think that young scholars should, I think all scholars should be writing about what interests them, you know, what they care about, what they're passionate about. And, you know, I think that um, people, when you write about what you are passionate about, what you really care about, I think people appreciate that. Everybody appreciates that because they they see that it's there's a, there's a kind of there's a kind of genuineness to it, um, which is not about which is not strategic, but which is genuine. Um, so um, yeah. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's an adequate response to to what Ramsey said on your on your show. But yeah, you know, no. I admire and respect his work, and I'm 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 glad that he's engaging with mine. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think it just these um, like, thank you for responding to like what Ramsey's concern is about. And I think, like you said, it's so much concern about in academia, which already has so many limited positions now, very limited. I can tell everyone because I'm on the job market, um, but I knew that going in anyway which is why I'm looking into media positions and, hey, maybe even working for Playgirl <laughs> as an editor, who knows? Um, but I've always wanted to write, they always say, write the book that you would want to be out there. So like my dissertation, I'm proud of how subversive it is and how it mixes so many methods and is very erotic about Whitman's language. But it's also why... I do argue against biographical readings that read Whitman as gay. I mean, first, I have to say, I love Gary Schmidgall's Walt Whitman, A Gay Life. I know Gary. Um, I wouldn't have been able to think through Whitman without Gary's work. But I'm not talking about Gary's work. I'm talking about like just those who will reference Whitman as gay. And there's no like deep dive into his work. And sometimes it kind of reminds me about that question around um, Tim, like us circling now back and ending with token queer theory, that it, sometimes when an author's sexuality has to be referenced, I don't find that fascinating. I find that then they move on to other aspects that really actually does a heteronormative straight attempt at looking at the work, even though they thought Whitman is gay. Like it, it's it collapses everything and it doesn't make the body erotic. It doesn't make his poetry erotic. It just allows other aspects of his work to be centered, even though there's so much sensuality. And maybe that's how I feel also about the um, you've had me think now, Tim, with your response of like how I'm putting myself out there. I wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, this is what I'm passionate about. So, like, why am I going to censor my work? Right, it's... right, right. The, I mean, the worst, the worst censor of your work is always, always oneself, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that I, 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 I like your, I like your approach. I like your thinking broadly about the kind of work that you can do to, if you want to live in Manhattan, you have to make a living, right? You need to be able to pay the bills because you will, <laughs> the bills will be high, right? Um, and I think thinking about what your training 
as a reader, critic, thinker, teacher, intellectual, young man or a queer young man of your generation, what you can do uh, from, from, from that background, I think is exactly the right approach. I think it's exactly the right approach. And, you know, one of the things I was really looking forward to and, and have enjoyed about talking with you is um, it's really, you know, it's really interesting to me as somebody, you know, I'm 58 years old, I've been around the block a few times, right? Um, and I've been in this business for a long time now. And it's really interesting to me to talk to and gain the perspectives of, you know, guys, guys of your generation. And I think it's important for the younger generations to, to read and, and take seriously the older generations, but also to forge their own, their own paths, you know. Um, and so there's, there's much more that we could say about this, you know. Um, but yeah, but I will have you back, Tim. And yeah, and I think like right now, I don't want to speak for my generation, but sure. I mean, your work has ushered in um, arguing like even your work on limited intimacy, but beyond sexuality, it's in the title, is thinking outside of just needing a label. And I do think that my like generation right now we're really torn between wait like yes there's so much work that's been done of coming out of the closet in terms of literary figures specifically but just um that we need to make this messy like we need to you know not say that author's dead or that proclamation with you know roland barth um but that, okay, well, the author's there, but how can we just play around? And it's why I like Jane Ward's work. Like, even though I don't agree with everything in not, um, what is it, not gay, sex between okay, straight right, white men, right. like I question some of the methodology, I still think it's wonderful. And I love Jane Ward for actually putting it out there and, you know, taking a stand and making something creative and playful because at the end of the day like you said Tim we are readers like we want something that also is suggestive and a proclamation and you know we don't have to buy every single idea like that's what makes cool. something like when I even I'm questioned about well how about the women that's exciting for me because it means well wait like there's something to my idea about what I'm thinking through around queer male bodies, because then you wouldn't have asked that question. Right, so. right. Well, and I think you, you know, when you say, you know, let's, what do you say, make keep it messy, or, or I, I think the, it's the messiness that um, is incredibly important not to lose sight of or clean up under under whatever rubric including the rubric of identity which is always a way of cleaning up the mess and making the borders and the boundaries neat and firm and steady you know one of my favorite lines from porn there is there is an actor whose name i, I maybe i never knew if i knew it i i don't recall but he always says you know um make it nasty make it nasty keep it messy make it nasty and i you know 
there are worse mottos to have both for both for sex and for life than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and because of my Virgo-ness, it could be messy and sexy and nasty, but then uh, that bed sheet better go in the hamper. Okay. Uh, so, Tim, this has just been wonderful. Oh, what are you? My, is there my anything? Pa my, pa my partner is a Virgo, so. Oh, so you know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, we have our wild side, but it has to then be contained. Um, so is there anything right now, you know, what should be on our radar? Is there something you're working on that you're excited you about? Know, I, I think that we could, there's so much we could continue talking about, uh, Andrew, and I really enjoyed the conversation. I, you know, I, I could, I have a lot to say about what I'm working on because there are multiple projects. Um, but I think we should end here and you've got some, I think you have some editing to do. You have some cleaning up to do. And um, I really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Yes. Thank you, Tim. And I know that Tim's not on social media. Uh, no. So, but you all can find him um, on his university page, which is in the show notes and send fan letters to Tim. I'm sure he would enjoy that. I'm excited to have you back with, I know you have a future project, so many projects. I'll have you back on. I can't wait to hear responses to this episode. And thank you so much, Tim. It's just been wonderful having this conversation, sharing space with you and just getting to meet you. Well, thank you, Andrew, for doing it. You're, you're so good at this. Um, you know, as, as I said before we, before we did this, you know, like, uh, I don't like Zoom, I don't like appearing on screen, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little screen shy, you know, blah, 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 but you are very good at this and you have helped put me at my ease. And so I really appreciate that. And, um, I hope your listeners get something out of it too. Oh, they definitely will. And I think they have a lot to search on Google. Uh, mm -hmm. so thank you, Tim and bye to the listeners out there and. Yeah. Listen next week to, I'm sure, another riveting conversation. Okay. Bye, Tim. Have a great Thank day. Bye Thank bye. you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the host and director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor and host of True Crime and Academia. Please, if you're not, make sure that you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, too. Remember our TikTok? That's where all the exciting video clips are posted. Make sure that you join our Patreon if you want more Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia content. All the video interviews are on our patreon all of our bonus episodes are on patreon and it just means so much for you to join for five dollars a month you unlock all of our bonus episodes and also it just helps support the ivory tower boiler room thank you so much for giving mary and i a needed jolt of caffeine for coffee thanks for the five dollars head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room we cannot wait for you all to listen to our summer season. There are so many exciting episodes. And we're also celebrating three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. So without further ado, 
Thanks for listening. Make sure you listen to the next episode next week and have a wonderful summer season, everyone. Okay, bye now.